Here we are in the fourth week of Lent. This long and slow, sustained period of preparation for Easter. Now for almost 1900 years, the church, led by the Spirit of God, has told us that we need Lent. We need this 40 days to prepare for Easter. We need this journey. We need it to be not only spiritual, but we need it to be physical. We need physical actions to really get us on this journey, this pilgrimage to Easter. And we need actions. We need discipline, things that we make ourselves do, things like increased engagement with the Father through prayer. Disciplines like scripture reading and fasting. Why do we need these disciplines? We need them because they are uniquely powerful tools that lead us to repent. But why do we need to repent? What's the purpose of repentance? Well, the purpose of repentance comes out very strongly in Luke 15. Repentance is the only path to become truly human and truly yourself. Repentance is the only path to be reconciled to God as you discover your true humanity and what God made you to be uniquely. That's the purpose of Lent. To lead us to the Father. And in, in our journey to the Father, we become truly human and truly ourselves. Look with me at Luke 15, verse 1. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. If you were there, you would have been shocked. See, too many of us have been reading the Bible with all kinds of defense mechanisms. And we've lost the shock of that statement. Thieves and traitors, murderers and prostitutes hanging out with Jesus. Not just hanging out in an audience. No, these men and these women were joking with Jesus and laughing with Jesus. They were eating together. It was a riotous meal. Forget for a moment that it offends your sensibilities to label a group of people sinner. Remember, this book was written 2,000 years ago in a society that was far more ordered and puritanical than Victorian England. In this society, these people that were spending time with Jesus, they were unclean. They were contemptible. They were the dregs of society, and you would have thought that about them. You would have felt that in your guts about them. So in that culture, for a religious leader to be seen eating with them, it means that he is receiving them into deep friendship. It means that he's receiving them into an intimate relationship of friendship. And to say the least, in that culture, it was scandal. So it should come as no surprise that in the next verse, we learn 
the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Picture the scene. A nice sunny day in Palestine. There's a hustling and bustling village. There's the market. You can smell the bread. A couple of guys arguing over the rainy season being late, over their goats getting too skinny. Can you see a group of children playing chase, running in and out of the legs of the grown-ups that are trying to have conversation? Don't they know coffee and bagel hour is for us to talk? And there's Jesus. He's eating with these deeply morally corrupted people. The, the tables are covered in plates and bowls and cups for drinking. The meal's mostly done. They're having a blast. All of them cutting up, rolling with laughter. They're having a great, friend, a great meal like friends do. And there's this group of religious leaders with their lily-white reputations and their perfect smiles and their designer togas and their vicious gossip. And they're staring. And they're whispering. Not so quiet that you can't hear. They're disgusted with Jesus for spending time with the likes of these people. This is the day in the Bible that ranks up there with the top two or three I wish I could have been with. And I would have been with the Pharisees, I'm sure. I mean, because I'm far more like our culture. Not in this way. I mean, we're not like this. But in so many ways, we have the same idols as our culture. Jesus at the table with the sinners. The Pharisees with their arrogant glances, their condemning attitude. And then Jesus stands up. Everybody stops talking and they stare. And you see 30 or 40 pairs of eyeballs fixed on Jesus. There he is, this religious leader, surrounded by expendables. Surrounded by the people you hate. I mean, do we have to dig around to find them? Surrounded by your parents who have harmed you? I mean, maybe this is not the group of people you condemn, but who are the people you condemn? Who are the people you hold anger towards? Who are the people you want God to restrict his mercy to? The liberal? The Democrat? The illegal immigrant? The undocumented citizen? The conservative? Soldier? I mean, who, who's the group that you would have struggled to grasp that Jesus is a friend with them? And then it happens. One of the most amazing moments in human history. Verse 3. He told them this parable. By the way, singular parable. The whole chapter is one single teaching event. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep that was lost. I read it fast. Because in the original language of this part of the Bible, it was written in all one sentence. 
It's a cumulative series of rhetorical questions, all climaxing in the single question. Isn't the homecoming of the lost but found sheep the occasion for celebrating with friends and neighbors? This is his response to the accusation of this man receives sinners and eats with them. He cares about the one. Yes, he's the Lord of the cosmos. But he knows every hair on your head. He doesn't see masses. He sees Rick. He sees Doris. He sees Jacob. He sees Mike. He sees Alan and Susanna. Oh, for the one. This is his response to the accusation. Go back and look at verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner. You know, it's an interesting thing. You know, in, the, in, in medieval time, when they were beginning to discover the extent, the extent of the cosmos, you know what it did? It struck wonder. In our day, you know what it does? It strikes fear. You know how many people say to me that the extent of the cosmos, in one, some term or another, deeply strikes at their faith, the size of the universe. Isn't it interesting that in another day and age, it struck wonder to the heart. Wonder that with this size, he could care for me. But so many of us have been ravaged by scientific culture that the size of the universe somehow restricts God's ability to know the one. Go back to verse 1. The tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. Now look at the verse right before that. You see, we've been messed up. We read our Bibles and we start and stop where the subject headings are. And we start and stop where the chapter headings are. And it causes us to miss important connections. Look at the last verse of chapter 14. The last phrase. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The very next verse, the tax collectors and sinners were the ones who were drawing near to what? Hear. In other words, the tax collectors and sinners, they are the ones responding in the right way to the God of the universe. They're doing it. They're doing, they're following God's plan. But go back to chapter 7, verse 29. Flip back a few pages in your Bible. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees, the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized. Now go back a few more pages to chapter 3, or scroll up, I guess, if you're Gil. Or Alan, Susanna. Roll up to Luke chapter 3. Notice verse 3 talking about John the Baptist. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now drop down to verse 12. Luke 3 verse 12. Tax collectors also came, literally in Greek, even tax collectors. Or you could say tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, teacher, What shall we do? Do you see? There's this thread going through Luke's gospel. There's two groups of, there's two responses. One is ingrained with what God is doing. And the other is cross purposes. You see it. Jesus' reason 
for receiving these sinners into such a deep friendship, for having a party with them, is because they are responding correctly to him. They are repenting. Repentance is the fundamental response to Jesus. It is the inescapable condition for coming home, for becoming truly human, for becoming truly yourself, who you were really made to be. So back in chapter 15, go back there. Look at verse 7. Heaven has parties when people who have lost their way, who have lost their own sense of who God made them to be, when they come home to God. All of heaven erupts in joy when even just one person, if it was only Lisa, the enormous God of the cosmos, knows, cares, rejoices. All of heaven, repentance is the doorway to joy, to the kingdom. Then he tells another story. He raises the stakes as important as one sheep when compared to 99. When a woman, a peasant woman in a village loses one-tenth of her savings, this is serious and urgent business. And again, verses 8 and 9, literally in the language of the New Testament, a single, long, cumulative series of questions climaxing with the obvious. Isn't the act of celebration the only appropriate response in the monumental discovery of this woman's lost saving? And again in verse 10, Jesus draws out the main point he's making. He's responding to the Pharisees' accusation. He's giving the explanation for his scandalous, Shocking behavior. Jesus is feasting with tax collectors and with sinners because God celebrates the fact that anyone comes home. And in verse 11, he raises the stakes yet again. Not the loss of one sheep out of a hundred, not the loss of one coin out of ten, but the loss of one son out of two. You see how he's ratcheting up the emotional Intensity, as valuable as sheep and coins might be to a person. Can you imagine the loss of one of your children? The story of the younger brother. It's basically a popular Middle Eastern caricature of the younger brother. Lazy and irresponsible, covetous and greedy. And they've got us all wrong, by the way. Right, Scott? Amen. (laughs) Actually, Scott has a cup of coffee. He just toasted what I said. (laughs) He raised it up. A good hobbit. When a father in this culture died, the younger son would get part of the estate. But here's the key. You don't go selling your house and divvying all of your possessions out while you're still alive. The younger son basically said, Dad, when you die, this all gets divided up. Let's not wait until you die. Sell my portion. Liquidate my portion of your accumulated asset and give it to me now. 
And that's only the beginning of the boy's downward spiral. Leaves. He takes his portion, sells it, gets the money, puts it in his pocket, and walks out the door. Then what does he do with this wealth that it took his father a lifetime to accumulate? That the remaining family still needs. He uses it to pay for prostitutes. To be the life of the party. (laughs) And when he's spent it all, famine strikes. And we see a boy living as a Gentile. He's rejected not only his family, not only his land, but his very identity. He's lost all sense of who he is. The external journey of the boy away and down only mirrors the greater reality of his own inward journey. His physical journey into the gutter is just a picture of the internal journey. He's lost his way. He's lost himself. He doesn't know who he is. Remember in verse 13, it says he went into a far country. He left himself. That's why it says in verse 17, he came to himself. See, the greater journey is the internal journey where he's losing all sense of who he is. Verse 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He no longer has any sense of who he really is. He's totally believed the lie. The mask he's been wearing, he now buys it. And that's who he sees himself to be. He arose and he came to his father. And before we can even get to the end of verse 20, the father is running to this broken shell of a son, embracing him, kissing him, giving him gifts and clothes and a ring and sandals. And this is a joyful response of the father to those who take the difficult journey of honest repentance. Look at verse 23. Jesus makes the point. When we repent, when by the grace of God, we admit that we are not truly human. It's not just the serial killers who act like animals. We've just learned to do it in a legal, morally acceptable way. full-blown banquet, the best and most expensive beef. Janelle and I, a couple of times, have gotten a quarter of a calf with the uh, cooks who get three quarters of a calf. They have teenagers. It takes us a long time to eat a quarter. There's seven little mouths in our house. How many people did he plan on feeding, Scott? A whole calf? A whole beef? This is a lot. Some, Some... New Testament scholars say that this was perhaps enough for up to a hundred guests. Spare no effort, spare no expenses. Look at verse 24. Why? Because he was dead. He had lost himself. He was not who he was made to be. He had lost all sense of his true 
himself, dead to himself, dead to his family, nearly dead physically. He was lost, lost to the Father. But now he's repented, so he's being restored, rediscovering who he truly is all along. This, this person clothed in the Father's coat, clothed in the Father's ring, and just, that's who he truly was all along. And discovering who he truly was is worth a party to the Father because the Lord of the cosmos cares for you. He gave you a unique fingerprint, and that's just the start of it. What an amazing picture of God's love for you and me. This is the journey of Lent, repenting of our death-dealing ways so that we become truly human and truly ourselves But Jesus doesn't stop there. No, now, starting in verse 25, we get to the climax of the story. All of that for you English literature types up until now, it's just been rising action. Now we get to the heart of it. The elder son. He hears. The return, the restoration, the celebration, and his response will set it in relief to the father's response. Because that's what the author of this gospel wants you to do. Look at verse 20. The father reacts to the return of the younger son. It says he felt compassion. But look at verse 28. The elder son reacts to the return of the younger sons. And it says what? He felt anger. In anger, the older son refuses to join in the celebration. This hard working son, this honorable son, he's lost his way too. He doesn't know he's lost his way. Because that's what losing your way does to you. But he has. Now his loss of his true self, of his true humanity, of his unique God-made identity and purpose, his loss of it, on the surface it looks entirely different than the rebellious younger son. On the surface, our church looks entirely different than the congregation of early church. But make no bones about it. You can be just as lost. You can be just as dehumanized as the homeless person. Successful folk can be lost too. When you look at the elder brother, you see someone who just like the little brother has lost his true self and there's a hunger in him. That's what happens when you lose your true self. You've got a hunger inside. And this hunger isn't revealed in the kind of choices that put you in the gutters of society all the time. Now we see his hunger cloaked in an admirable work ethic. He's been trying to fill the hunger with a job, working 14 hours a day. Is that you? Is there a society-approved brokenness in you? Is your hunger coming out in ways that lead to success in our culture? Is there a hunger in you that drives you to pursue success, acceptance? Maybe your hunger expresses itself in a way that doesn't lead to homelessness. Maybe your hunger keeps you out of the gutter in our society. 
Maybe your hunger expresses itself in the way that you make your family everything. Maybe your hunger is this insatiable desire for stuff, for the acquisition of stuff. There are wanting in you that knows no end. Whether it's work or success or family or things, at the end of the day, there is no end to that wanting. The high never lasts. The hunger returns. It gnaws. Periodically, it bubbles to the surface, leaving this residual slime of despair. You resemble other people. You come, you go. Nobody really knows that there's a hunger. You cannot seem to fill. Where does it come from? The younger son lost to himself. The older son lost to himself. The process of becoming lost to yourself, it can go way back. It can be deep in our childhood with parents who, because they were lost to themselves, did not have the capacity to be present to you. Parents who impose upon a child child standards and goals that are not true to the wonder of who that child is. The parent, instead of calling forth the individuality of the child, nurturing in a child a deep awareness of his own unique destiny makes the child an extension of himself. And this ravaged child becomes a teenager trying to discover herself needing to belong against all the pressures of alienation from the group with no sense of who who you truly are you surrender to the values of the group and parents we see it so clearly in our children but look at it in us The wonder of your individual identity lost. Schools don't help. They're designed to educate the masses. Churches are no good at this point too often because churches have forgotten that the concerns of Christianity is for the unique wonder of the individual because we're all wrapped up in numbers. Child so easy to mold becomes the adolescent so anxious to conform and you become the adult shaped from without. Instead of the wonder of who you are within. But in whatever way it happens. The person who has lost his true self has a hunger. And there is nothing to fill the emptiness. This is the older son. He succeeds. This is the younger son. He's in the gutter. But it is both of them. Is it you? I mean, look at the older son. It all comes out in in this one moment when he refuses to enter his own home. He doesn't even know that he's out of touch with his real self. He's been wearing the mask for so long. His massive unconscious is driving his life. He doesn't even know that he's living out of rhythm with who he was made to be. But we see it. We see it. We see it in his refusal to share in the meal. The older brother is now the one who is rejecting the family. Have you ever stopped to ask? Why do I get so angry? 
when people do X? Have you ever stopped to ask, why do I have this fear? Where is this worry coming from? What is the reason for my depression? Why is there such an unrest in me? Look, if you do not put these hard questions to yourself, you will constantly be demanding their answer from others. You will ravage others with your expectations of them, and then you will deeply be hurt by them when they don't meet them. You project on others your own deep brokenness. You do not take the hard journey inward to come to yourself, your true self. You will demand things from others that can only be received by the tilling and tending of the soil of your own life. You will destroy your marriage. You will constantly feel alienated from others. I'm not talking about a morbid kind of introspection. I'm talking about that inward journey that is so necessary to becoming truly human and truly your unique self, the unique you that God made you to be. So many of us in this church are like the older brother. Our own lives are battlefields where ignorant armies clashed by night. And once again, the father shames himself for the sake of his son. Just as he had run out and humiliated himself in that culture to meet the younger son, he leaves the banquet in which he is the host in order to beg his jerk of a son. You really want to become who God made you to be. The unique you. You must engage with God. You must take the journey inward to do, that God alone can lead you on. The journey inward must be done with the Father. You must set aside time. Every day to settle into the silence. To be with God in the quiet places. In those places where you are beside the quiet waters and the spirit of God can brood over you. You must. There is no maturity into true humanity. There is no way to become truly yourself quickly without pulling time, pulling aside. You must. And that's where Jesus' parable ends. Of all the stories Jesus told, and the Gospels are filled with them, this one is unique. Only this one ends without an ending. We never find out what happens to the older brother. Does he join the party? Does he take the difficult journey inward of repentance with the father <laughs> when the when the screen goes blank and the theme music starts and the credits roll we're left with this unending of an ending in our mind 
You see the house filled with celebration and food and wine and music and dancing. And in the back, the father begging the oldest son to come in, join the party. But does he, does he? You see, this story was not merely an objective lesson he's trying to teach. I mean, can you see it in that moment? He locks eyes with the Pharisee and ends the story. Can you see the invitation in his eyes? Can you see that God has left the party and taken on flesh and he's come into your rebellion and he is looking at you? He's looking at Russ, looking at Mary Grace. He's looking at me. Right now. I love Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus says, when a church worships, he himself is among the church, declaring the Father's name to the church. Maybe your hunger has led to a culturally approved life. But we as a church have got to learn how to hold one another in the difficult journey of coming to ourselves so that we can come home to the Father. And it's hard and it's humiliating, but it leads to Where are you? Are you home? Are you truly yourself? Are you truly human? Let's pray.